You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. So I have here four identical cups. They have dirt in them. I don't know if you can see that. I chose clear cups. All right. This is a, uh, a bean seed, which is really just a bean. If I take care of that, what's going to grow? Beans. Good job. Excellent work. Enjoy. It'll take care and diligence, but you will get beans. All right. Flower seeds. Anybody? Flowers. Excellent work, Lydia. You're doing great. Can you pass this back? There we go. Now, it would be really weird if tomatoes grew out of that. It would be shocking, actually, if an oak tree came out of that. We we know what we planted. We expect something to grow. How about here? What's going to grow in this? Nothing. Excellent. Good work. Now, that doesn't feel like as much of a prize, does it? Isn't that odd? And the reason that doesn't feel like as much of a prize is that you all know that I will get out of this what I put into it. That I can absolutely expect things to grow if I put things in it. If I invest, if I'm careful, if I'm diligent. And I can expect nothing to grow if I don't do any of those things. Would you turn with me in a Bible to Galatians chapter 6? Galatians chapter 6 today, we're going to be at verse 7. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for you reap whatever you sow. If you sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the spirit, you will reap eternal life from the spirit. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. So then, whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially those of the family of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Every farmer knows that what they're going to get is directly related to whether they woke up early and worked hard every day. The harvest is extremely predictable in that way. And they also know that it's not just one day giving 100% of your effort. It's not just one day waking up. It's every day. It's a diligent, attentive thing. Likewise, they know that the harvest they're getting now is not some magical thing, but the result of all of their care and effort over a long period of time. It's not some magical thing. It's been growing for a long time. This is a spiritual principle, Paul says. Not just something that farmers know. This is something we can absolutely expect in our spiritual lives as well. When you put the gospel into practice in your life, 
you give it time, if you give it care and attention and energy and effort, you will see things grow. Likewise, if you put other things into your life and you give them care and energy and attention and effort, you will absolutely see those things grow. He's talking about grit. We've been in this series that's really straightforward, this greater than that. And today we're talking about grit greater than quit. I thought rhyming would be nice. Grit, uh, if you looked at like the whole of the Christian tradition, would really be a lot of different virtues kind of slammed together. Endurance and perseverance and patience and fortitude, which is a great one. Diligence. People would say that diligence is the most boring of the virtues. It's not nearly as exciting as faith, hope, love, courage. Diligence is just doing what you're supposed to do every day. If, if it's done well, you won't even notice that it's happening. It's when you let your yeses be yeses and your noes be noes. It's when you text people back when they text you. It's when you show up on time all of the time. It's when you call people who you know have been trying to get a hold of you. It's the kind of person you love to be friends with and you love to work with. It's the kind of person that you're really annoyed when you don't experience on a regular basis. Diligence is something we absolutely value. We just don't talk about it a lot. But it's hard to talk about diligence and the Christian faith because sometimes we think about grace and we think, well, because of grace, I don't have to work at all when it comes to following Jesus. At Dallas Willard wrote a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines. And in the book, he says, imagine if I come to you and I say, I'm perfect, or at least I'm going to be. I'm never going to sin again. I'm going to be exactly like Jesus. You look at me like I'm crazy, and you think, you don't understand the gospel. But if I come to you and I say, I'm never going to be perfect. I'm not even going to try to be like Jesus. I've given up trying to avoid sin. You would look at me like I'm crazy and like I don't understand the gospel. He says, the thing is, we want to follow Jesus. What, what it is to be a Christian is to follow Jesus. And that does take time and energy and effort and attention. And we're also going to be really bad at it. But that's okay, because the person we're following is Jesus. And Jesus is really okay when we're bad at things. In fact, he's good at helping us to be better at things. That's sort of what Paul is talking about when he, he says, people who sow to the flesh reap what the flesh can produce. People who sow to the spirit reap what the spirit can produce. In the chapter just before this, he's been talking about the fruits of the spirit. And he's been talking about the works of the flesh. When you're doing things all on your own, you'll see things grow in you that you won't really like. But when you find yourself pouring all of your time and effort and energy and attention, all of your diligence into God's kingdom, you'll see that things grow in you that you can kind of explain, but that actually it's, it's almost like God's doing this crazy work in you. And you know, that's also the product of waking up early every morning and praying, spending time reading scripture on a regular basis and, and loving your friends and loving your enemies and trying to be gracious to your neighbors when they're really annoying. When a little kid wants to be like a baseball player or a basketball player, what they do is hilarious. They'll, they'll try to imitate everything he does. They'll wear the clothes he wears. That's how I get great at this. They'll drink the soda he drinks. That's how I become really good at baseball. They'll try to stand like he stands. They'll try to throw like he throws. And of course, that doesn't work. Because what you don't see is what's happening outside of the game, that he's working out all of the time. That baseball player is practicing. Despite all of the talent, he's really trying to develop skill. He's trying to get better and better and better at the game. And some of us, when it comes to following Jesus, we go, okay, so walking on water. 
that actually becoming like Jesus might begin a little more simply, like praying on a regular basis and noticing when anger pops up in you and saying, that's maybe not the best. What do I do with that? And talking to community and being present in worship. These little things that slowly and steadily add up to something great. Quick question. Coulter, has anything grown yet? No. Notice how ridiculous it would be if we thought something would grow now. That it actually takes time and energy and effort. He's going to have to water that. He's going to have to pay attention to that or not. And if he doesn't, nothing will grow. But we believe that something can grow in that. Anthony, has anything grown in yours? Do you think anything ever will? There's nothing in there. This is what Paul is saying. You reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap what the flesh can produce. Corruption, chaos, fear, death. If you sow to the spirit, you will reap what the spirit can produce in you. Eternal life. This amazing kind of crop that we're all very interested in harvesting at some point. So we can't grow weary, Paul says. We can't give up, Paul says. We've got to be in it day in and day out the way farmers are in it day in and day out because they believe something is growing because they know that it's not just going to be a couple of days, but it might be months or years before they see a harvest and it's worth it because they really want the harvest. There's a woman named Angela Duckworth. Uh, Some of you have maybe read a book she wrote on grit. Some years back, she also gave some TED Talks on grit. They're really good. She was a public school teacher in New York. And what she found was when she would go to school, she would teach people, some of whom were really, really smart, and some of whom were honestly not that smart. But sometimes it was the not smart kids who would do better than the smart kids. And that drove her crazy because she was really trying to help all of these kids to succeed. And she ended up really diving deep into psychology and going after a PhD at one point. And she wanted to figure out how to teach this thing that she called grit. The difference between these kids really, it didn't seem to be money. It didn't seem to be family life. It really seemed to be there was something in them that just refused to quit, refused to give up. So she ended up working with people at West Point which is a place where only incredible people go. You have to have a a congressional recommendation to get in. You have to be at the top of your class to get in. You have to have amazing extracurricular activities and be extremely physically fit to get in. And even among all these candidates, the West Point folks were really, really good at identifying who would succeed after school. They'd give you a score based on how fast you could run, based on how intelligent you were, all you did on the aptitude tests, who you were as a person in community. They knew whether you would succeed or not in the military and how well they were great at predicting it. What they couldn't predict was whether you would get to the end at graduation. Because there were plenty of these people who would quit after just a couple of weeks or a couple of months. The best and the brightest in the country would quit after just a few weeks, just a few months. So she developed this test, a test for grit, which, by the way, we'll send out to you and you can find out how gritty you are. And the the test is, is pretty straightforward. And basically, grit is this, she'd say. It's passion and perseverance. Passion and perseverance for difficult, long term goals. It's relentless focus on the future, on the future that you want, and a determination, a constant, rigorous work ethic to get to that future. Grit is living life like it's a marathon and not a sprint. Eugene Peterson would say that the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. It's a long obedience in the same direction. We want to see things produced in us. We want to see the fruits of the Spirit produced in us. It's going to take grit. It's going to take energy and effort. And the truth is, you are going to be tempted to give up. And maybe you've given up many times along the way. 
Do not be weary, Paul says, in doing good. Don't be discouraged, maybe, in being courageous. There's a play on words in Greek. Um, basically, the first word is don't become inwardly bad at, and then doing good. He really wants it to stick with us. That we shouldn't let the very thing we're trying to do somehow become twisted into something that's not good for us. Or that we suddenly become really bad at doing the very thing we know that we're called to do. And I've been thinking a lot about that, about weariness and about some of the people I really respect in the life of faith and just how long the road was. If you think about Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is a huge hero of mine, an amazing person, and also a huge nerd. That's what he was. He was just a huge nerdy pastor. You can see why I like him. He was a huge nerdy pastor, and there was a little old lady who got arrested because she wouldn't give up her seat on a bus, and that bugged him, and so he joined a bus boycott. And a couple of weeks later, he was arrested for eight days in prison. He spent some time thinking, and he came out, and he gave a little sermon, basically, on what it was like to spend eight days in prison. I don't know that I would have quit yet. Then a couple of days later, his house was bombed. That's when I would have quit. For sure, I would quit when my house was bombed. And he kept at it for many more years. He was arrested 29 times in the course of this. He wrote sermon after sermon. He was threatened. His children were threatened. His wife was threatened. He was stabbed at one point and kept going. He was eventually assassinated and didn't actually see the culmination of all of the work that he was well, really working so very hard for. He saw little successes along the way, bits and pieces of growth, but not the fruit of civil rights. You and I, we respect people like this. Absolutely. The question is whether we're willing to put in the same work that they're willing to put in to see the kingdom of God move in our city, to see the spirit of God move in our lives and in our families. We want to raise up remarkable children. We want to really love our neighbors. We want to lead people to Jesus, but it's an awful lot of work. And there's, you know, I've got, I just got Disney Plus and the whole MCU is there. And like, I could do that, but like, I've been going chronologically through. Last time I went like when they were released, but I want to kind of get really into these movies and get a sense of exactly what's, even though I've seen it before. One of our big enemies when it comes to grit uh, is an old enemy the church has described. It's called sloth. Um, I actually have an image for you. Um, This is exactly what it looks like. It should strike terror in the hearts of the Christians. The sloth honestly was named by some monks who'd made it to the new world and were extremely entertained by this animal that moves at the rate of several feet a minute. That's, That's the top speed that honestly grows algae on its body because it's so slow moving that it can develop a nice ecosystem. Fungus grows. I'm not kidding. Fungus will grow on a sloth. They will get mushrooms because they move so slowly. And for the monks, they thought, this is, exactly, this is exactly the illustration we need to remind us that we want to be working hard and moving for the kingdom of God. Uh, we don't want to look like this adorable little guy. There was a, a pastor I know who wrote a book called Overrated. Uh, the basic thrust of the book was we're more in love with the idea of changing the world than actually changing the world. We love talking about doing great things, but we're really unwilling to even begin a lot of the time. That's what sloth is, an unwillingness even to begin that good. Now don't grow weary, Paul says. Now don't be discouraged. Don't quit. Don't give up. We have this opportunity for a harvest. Now another reason we might be tempted to give up, not just laziness and sloth, but fear. Fear is a really good reason, a really good reason to give up. 
At least that's what most of us think. And there's a lot of fear going around these days. It's palpable. If you are on social media, it's everywhere. It might be a good time, by the way, to take a break from social media. I'm just encouraging you. Just because there's so much fear everywhere, that's what's pouring into your life from that particular channel. But fear is everywhere. I was at the grocery store on Friday. And I went to the grocery store because I was working on dinner. And my wife, who's the most reasonable person I know, says, somebody just sent me a picture of the grocery store and the shelves are empty and there's a line to the back of the store. And I thought, huh, and I was chopping. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought the most reasonable person I know is concerned. People must be going nuts. If the most reasonable person I know is even mildly, oh no. And I needed to buy tomatoes and was really just bummed that I had to go to the grocery store. And so I went to the grocery store and sure enough, in the middle of the day, on a weekday, people were going nuts. I was going down the canned food aisle trying to find tomatoes and there's a man coming after me, literally just grabbing cans and sweeping them into his cart. Now, that's crazy behavior because he's not looking at the cans and deciding which food he wants. He's acting as though there's never going to be food again. As though we're living in a zombie apocalypse kind of situation. He needs to get into a bunker and never come out. These are canned goods he's not going to want. And he's taking all of them just out of pure fear. But I was at the checkout and I was talking to the guy and I said, so how you doing? And he says, it's been really hard, honestly, because plenty of people are calling in sick. They're not sick. They just don't want to come in. Partly because they know it's going to be crazy and partly because, well, they're afraid of these people. And we just know that people need groceries and that they're afraid. And so we're coming in and we're working really hard, but it's, it's crazy. And we're just, we're trying to serve. I was like, man, I, I will be praying for you. I didn't think that this would be as crazy. He's like, thanks, man. I really need that. Are you having any trouble with supply? No, we'll have groceries next week. It's fine. Things are fine. It's just people are scared. We're panicked. And we're panicked for a good reason. I'm not saying, by the way, the coronavirus is not an issue. I'm not saying it's not a dangerous disease. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not minimizing at all. It is dangerous. We should be careful. We agonize at great length, actually, about whether to have service today because we care about you and we want to be responsible leaders. We're really thinking about this a lot. We've been praying for you, actually, quite a bit. But what we are not going to do is operate from a place of fear. So we might go, well, this is wise. We might go, well, we respect the government. We want to be careful and we don't actually want to hurt anyone. But it won't be because we're afraid of things. And I know that some of you are here and you are afraid. And maybe that's too strong a word, anxious. And I have to tell you, I am blown away that you came to church today. So impressed. Amazed that you came to church today because I know that the thing you are afraid of is us. And I know that you know that that's bad for you. And you came to worship anyway. And that's amazing. Absolutely amazing. I just want to tell you, something is growing in you, and that is the fruit of the Spirit. I'm not even going to give you credit for it, because you know that you're scared and you still came to worship. You know that one of the most important things you can do is worship Jesus Christ, the God who conquered death, who walked into a grave and walked right back out, who will lead you and me right out of our graves. This is the God we believe in. And that's why we show up to worship on a Sunday morning. It's really important to us. But again, fear is a real thing and it's everywhere in the world and it's stopping people from loving one another well. It is a really good reason not to take care of your neighbor. It's a really good reason not to show up and worship. It's a really good reason to not help someone at the grocery store who seems to be sneezing. 
We get worried about stuff like that. We get afraid of what might happen. And so we, well, we give up doing the good that Paul is describing. And we lose sight maybe of the harvest that we've got coming. A guy named C.S. Lewis, uh, who's wise, wrote an essay many, many years ago on living in an atomic age. And some people on YouTube, for some reason, created a doodle thing for it. And there's a British voiceover. This isn't the voice of C.S. Lewis. But I thought I'd play two minutes of it for you, and we're going to talk about it a little bit. On Living in an Atomic Age by C.S. Lewis. In one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I am tempted to reply, why? As you would have lived in the 16th century, when the plague visited London almost every year. Or as you would have lived in a Viking age, when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night. Or indeed, as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had, indeed, one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics. But we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances, and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made, and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, a microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. About you reply, it is... We'll send that whole video to you, by the way. It's worth watching a couple of times. They can break our bodies, but they need not dominate our minds. You and I, we have something that should absolutely dominate our minds at all times. Jesus Christ. At all times. We have a hope that other people do not have. Free us from the kind of fear that is gripping the world. And I understand, again, that it is a dangerous disease. But the atomic bomb is a dangerous thing. It kills more people much faster. And it hasn't gone away. We just don't think of it as dangerous. We're just not afraid of it. That's the difference. You were highly likely to die in a car accident on your way to church today. More likely, actually, than getting the coronavirus. More likely than dying even if you got the coronavirus. And no one blinked at getting into the car this morning. Again, that's not to say that we aren't careful. It's not to say that we aren't wise. It's not to say we aren't responsible. It's just that we don't live in fear. You can tell when people are living in fear uh, what's been growing in their lives, where they've been investing their time and energy and attention and effort. And you can tell when the work of the Spirit is growing in your life. You can feel it blooming. We want to harvest, Paul says. 
Let's not give up doing good. Uh, another reason uh, that people give up, self-absorption. Uh, self-absorption is connected to fear and fear is connected to self-absorption. That's true. But self-absorption is a, a real thing. And in this particular time, maybe you're not afraid, but you're looking around and you're thinking, everybody else is afraid, so I better take care of myself. I better get mine, as Jordan was literally quoting people. There was a New York Times article yesterday. Some of you saw it, I'm sure. Yesterday, about a man who has 17,700 bottles of hand sanitizer. Yep. Not to mention quite a few masks and other things. And the reason he has all those bottles is the day that someone died, March 1st, he went around to every dollar store, every grocery store in his state, and took all of them. And he took all of them because of a phrase called retail arbitrage, which is something that happens all the time when people buy stuff and they flip it on Amazon to make the difference in the gap. But because people were going to die and people were going to panic, he knew that he could buy things for a dollar and sell them for $80. And he did. Amazon, by the way, did this as well. Lots of people did this. Amazon made tons of money, not just off doing it, but also off all their third-party sellers, which they were encouraging to do it. But when they started to get bad press, they said, oh, yeah. And then they threw all the third-party sellers under the bus, and they clamped out on price gouging, like all these people were doing it. We had no idea. And now this guy has 17,700 bottles that he couldn't sell in time. And all through the article, he's saying things like, I don't think this is greedy. I'm providing a service. I'm providing a service. I'm buying up things in parts of the country that no one has access to, and then I'm selling in parts of the country where people need it, and I'm just being compensated for that service I'm providing. This is how I make my living. The very end of the article, it didn't even occur to him that in a public health crisis where people are dying and where he's sitting on something he can't even sell, that maybe he could sell it at his cost to local hospitals that are running out of masks and hand sanitizer, or hospitals in Washington that are running out of masks and hand sanitizer. No, he's pretty comfortable with his hoard. Self-absorption. Again, there are people, I'm sure, that you know who could maybe use a friend to come over to their house. And you go, I just, there's a lot going on right now, and I'm just, we're just going to take care of us. There are people maybe who you know who might be struggling to find groceries at their store, and you have food in your house. And you go, well, if I give away that food, then maybe we don't have enough food. And that we would be people who don't grow weary of doing good because we expect to harvest in due time. Self-absorption. Another thing. Um, uh, anger would be one, or frustration. Maybe you're not calling it anger. Uh, pride is another one. Uh, these are my problem. Uh, I, I'm just going to confess that to you very publicly this week. I was in a grocery store on Friday and thought, you people are insane. I don't know what's happening right now. And I've been hearing folks talk with great fear in the world, and I think, man, what is happening right now? And there's this great sense of superiority in me that I know is dangerous. That is absolutely not what God is trying to produce in me. That I feel so much smarter and so much calmer and so much better than everybody else. And if you're one of those people, and if that's actually one of the reasons you felt fine coming to church today, because you don't feel remotely afraid, that's okay. Be really careful. Be really careful. Lean into that in prayer. Because that's not good for us. Consistently, the people in the Bible who Jesus has the most angry words with are the people who are smarter than everybody else who are just better than everybody else, the Pharisees. And there's something about the way that they know God that makes them feel smarter and better and superior, and they get angry at people who just aren't good enough at it. Just beware of that. I might be the only one today who's dealing with that, and that's okay. I've spent a lot of time talking to the Lord about it this week. We want to be people who love well and who love well and not from a place of fear. I was looking around this week at some of the churches who decided to close their doors and 
I was annoyed, honestly. Not at the churches. I understand why people would close their doors. That actually makes sense to me. You want to be responsible. You want to be careful. I just know that some of the elders in some of those places are saying, we don't want to get sued. Some of the elders in some of those places are saying, well, everyone's going to die. And that some of these decisions are being made from a place of fear for one reason or another. And the thing that troubles me about it more than anything else is the witness we're giving to the world around us. Because the world around us is going to see that the churches don't want to meet either. That we're just as afraid as everybody else. And that's a really tricky thing because I don't know that those churches should really open their doors. And I'm not saying that we won't ever close our doors. We want to be respectful, honestly, of the government. If the governor tells us to close down, we'll really think a lot about it. The question is, what does it really look like for us to be faithful knowing that we may not meet together out of wisdom and knowing that we may not meet together because we want to be good witnesses and we want to be good citizens in our city. What does that really look like for us? So I can tell you this, I'm going to be available always. I don't care if the world locks down, I will come to your house. I don't care if you get the coronavirus and you're in a hospital and no one will visit you. I will visit you. I'm available. And my wife and I have talked about this. We are available. Our house is available. We will never socially distance ourselves from you. We're just not going to do it. We, we care too much about you to distance ourselves from you in that way. And we know that in this time of fear and panic, that's actually really nice to know that there's some people in your life who just care about you more than they care about their own fear and their own things. And I know that there are other people in this room. I know that community groups will probably still meet some of them. And by the way, if you're uncomfortable and you can't go, there's no shame in it. That's not what we're trying to create today. That's not the idea. But we want to move not from a place of fear, but from a, a strange kind of confidence that that God is actually doing something in this time, that we have an opportunity in this time. Again, there are lots of plays on words in this chunk of Galatians. In verse 9, he says, we're going to reap at harvest time if we don't give up. In verse 10, when he says opportunity, it's the same word. That we have this opportunity right now. The gospel would be preached and proclaimed. That actually there's something really amazing in this season that you and I, who are in a time of fear and a time of disease and a time of death, know a God who heals people, know a God who offers an eternal kind of life, believe actually that there's this harvest coming for each and every one of us that is growing in our lives right now, a life that is untouchable by these things. So how do we really live that out? There was a, a church I worked at shortly after I left Young Life, uh, and I was a youth pastor in an elderly congregation. And I was in worship one Sunday, and the choir was singing, and there's sort of a stage and then kind of a choir loft behind it. And so the choir is singing, and all of a sudden, somebody starts having a heart attack. And it was during the song, and we're watching him have a heart attack. And it's a pretty unnerving thing to watch someone dying on, in a church during a song. And I run up to my boss, and I go, what do I do? And he goes, call 911. I don't know why I needed that, but I ran outside and I called 911. And the fire department's like, we'll come and we'll come and we'll meet you in the sanctuary. And the, I come back inside and some doctors and some nurses in the room have started stabilizing the guy. And my boss has stood at the front of the stage and sees this happening behind him. And all eyes are focused on that. And he goes, okay, we're going to pray. Again, I don't know why we needed this, but everyone, yeah, we should, we should pray. We're all in a church together. Like, why aren't we praying? So he starts leading us in prayer, and plenty of people's eyes are like, well, what's going on? Like, is he, you know, like, they're kind of like going down, but they're definitely keeping an eye on what's going on. The paramedics come in. When the paramedics come in, many people, you know, open their eyes and stop praying. And he goes, no, we're going to keep praying. And the heads go back down, and, and we all keep praying while the paramedics are trying to stabilize this guy. They have work to do. We have work to do. And when they put him on the stretcher and they have gas on his face, he gives us this weak thumbs up and people go nuts, right? The room just, people are going, it's so excited. 
And I go and I walk up to my boss and I go, man, that was crazy. And God's so good. Like what now? Like cookies? Like do we like <laughs> lemonade? Like do we just like go outside and like refreshments? Like uh, it was a weird day at church guys. And he goes, no, that's, that's not what we're going to do. We're, we're going to keep worshiping. I go, we're going to keep worshiping. Like nothing happened. And he goes, no, not like nothing happened. But the most reasonable thing we could do right now is worship. And I, again, I don't know why that was surprising to me. I, I don't remember the rest of the sermon, by the way. I don't remember really anything else that happened that day. But I do remember watching a man have a heart attack and thinking, I don't know what to do. And then thinking, oh, right, prayer. And also call the ambulance. And then afterward thinking, so I guess we're done for the day because the important thing happened. The man lived and he goes, oh, the important thing hasn't happened yet. We keep worshiping. We keep reading our Bibles. We keep praying. We keep listening to scripture. That's what we do in a time of crisis. It's the most reasonable thing for us to do when the world panics is read our Bibles and pray. To get back into the same disciplines the church has always had, even during times of plague, when a third of Europe was dying, even in times of war, when most of Europe and a lot of the United States wondered who would win, the Nazis or well, everybody else. There have been plenty of times, actually, in the history of the world where there's been great crisis, and the church has said, oh, right, we believe in a God who's in control. Maybe it's time to get back into a relationship with him and, and see, actually, what God might grow in this time or this season. Friends, there's a harvest, a harvest ready for us. If we don't give up, if we don't lose heart, if we don't stop doing the things that we have been called to do, a harvest of eternal life. That's what the spirit is growing in anyone and everyone who continues to talk to Jesus. Nothing has changed, even if everything has changed. Uh, There was a woman named Catherine of Siena, who's one of the great leaders in the church in the 1300s. Uh, by the way, the church has always had great women leaders. Uh, some people don't necessarily know about this. Great women leaders. Catherine of Siena was an amazing person, is one of two women who's called a doctor in the church, the Catholic church. Remarkable in the stuff that she's written, the stuff that she thought about. So in the 1300s, she wanted to be a nun. But she didn't want to be a nun like all the other nuns because the nuns would kind of go away into the, in the convents. And the monks would go away into the monasteries. She's like, I want to live with the rest of the people, but I just, you know... I want to be single and I want to follow Jesus and I want to wear the robe and be a nun. And so she applies and she's like, this is what I want to do. And they say, okay, you can do that. That's weird. You can live in a regular neighborhood, dress like a nun and be a nor- like be a nun, but like among the regular people. And they're like, great. And then the plague hits the black death, the bubonic plague that literally did kill a third of Europe. And when it hits the monasteries and the convents keep their doors closed because they don't understand disease the way you and I do hundreds of years, but they understand like, well, if I get near people with diseases, I'm going to get the disease. And some of them actually moved. They moved the buildings away from trade routes. They moved away from urban centers. They didn't want to get the diseases. They wanted to be together. They wanted to be spiritual, but they just, you know, we don't want the plague. And Catherine of Siena knew what she'd signed up for in the first place. I'm here. I follow Jesus. I wanted to be in a neighborhood and I'm dressed like a nun. So I guess I am one. And so she would wake up every day and she would go to the homes of people with the plague and she would lay hands on them, which blew people away. She would lay hands on people with open sores on their body who were suffering from plague. And they were amazed that she didn't get sick, but they were more amazed at the fruit of the spirit in her life, that she was willing to walk into these places. She was willing to love these people that she didn't operate from a place of fear. 
And she had this powerful witness. And many people came to know Jesus through the work of Catherine of Siena. I don't know that I would say the same thing about some of those monasteries and some of those convents. Now, this isn't to say that you and I need to go give great big hugs to people with coronavirus. That's not what I'm saying. We need to be wise. We need to be careful. We need to be responsible. But we need to follow Jesus. In fact, we need to follow Jesus. And then we should also be wise and careful and responsible. That's the priority of the two. Grit over quit, friends. Grit is greater than quit. That's what we're called to. To be people who, well, I'm going to read it to you one more time. Let us not grow weary in doing what is right. For we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. So then, whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those of the family of faith. Would you pray with me?